That I wasn't expecting. Exposed. It totally. Right? Totally. <laughs> and a bit flustered. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone from the Narrative Medicine Program for having me back. It was a great pleasure to be here uh, early last month when uh, they did the VA Challenges in Healthcare workshop. It was a great pleasure to be a part of that. It was a great pleasure to be the introducer to one of uh, my heroes, Jonathan Shea, at that, uh, at that workshop as well. So thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to start, actually, um, with a shout out right back to Chris. Um, Chris, who does the same work that I do, so obviously feels that my daytime job isn't dark enough, recommended this novel to me, uh, Anil's Ghost, uh, which is about someone who basically does our work. And I thought this was a very nice uh, quote to start with because it has a very interesting concept and idea in it that I think is very important to uh, 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 narrative medicine. She used to believe that meaning allowed a person to escape grief and fear, but she saw that those who were slammed and stained by violence lost the power of language and logic. It was the way to abandon emotion, a last protection for self. And I think anyone who does this work would recognize uh, this, uh, this quote in the work that we do and the people that we work with, but there's a, a really interesting idea in these words. And that is that the loss of language as protective, the loss of language and being able to describe and being able to tell a story and put into narrative form as protective to the self. You know, in psychology, you know, in, in analytic psychology, Freud talked an awful lot about what are the stages of protection that humans go through for psychological scarring, for psychological wounds. And it starts with basics like defense mechanisms, of denial and repression and humor and those kinds of things that we use to navigate the day to day. And it progresses with more and more, in psychological terms, pathology until you get to actual fracturing of self. Psychosis is considered in analytic thought to be a defense, to be a defense against pain, a defense against great distress. And here, uh, for our purposes, the idea of the loss of language itself, of the, of the actual ability to express is protective. Um, in following up on what Chris said about uh, evidence-based treatment and those who are trained to do it and those who don't do it even though they are trained, there are tremendous hurdles in place uh, for an endeavor like exposure therapy. Um, the, 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 the barriers to someone, to an individual being able to convert traumatic experience into narrative and into story the hurdles of listeners in being able to tolerate it and hear it, the hurdles of a society uh, in being able to integrate uh, great uh, tragedy, trauma, uh, into the fabric of the society itself. So it doesn't surprise me. We, you know, people in our field know of this, of this, of this research. Um, I'm here to help describe how it's helpful to break through those barriers and the value of that. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that those are not unformidable barriers. Those are real barriers. And I'm actually going to show, hopefully if there's time, a little bit of a video uh, from a virtual reality exposure therapy treatment that I've done. PBS Frontline did a piece and where you can see actually a combat veteran undergoing the treatment and you can see the intensity with which 
having him revisit the trauma, which is what exposure therapy basically seeks to do, uh, presents to him. Um, so this is uh, Judith Herman. We heard a lot of her at the workshop. Uh, she, by, by almost, from almost every corner, is considered to be if not the most important person writing about trauma. Um, these are just some quotes that just to set up the framework, um, barriers to uh, society, hearing, listening, integrating, traumatic story. Um, the barriers to, on the bottom one, um, being able to express the trauma in personal terms and put it into personal, and, and make personal meaning from it so that it can be integrated into the individual's life uh, as a way of moving on. These things are not easy, and uh, I think these will just sort of set up the framework with which we can uh, uh, continue uh, the lecture today. Um, the will to deny has a face validity to it for those anyone who works with trauma. The, the will to avoid talking about, thinking about, re-experiencing traumatic experience has face validity. It's on its face, it, most people will say, yeah, sure, I, I know what that's like, I, I, even if it's not at the trauma level. I know what it's like to not want to deal uh, with pain, um, uh, emotional pain. But why the will to proclaim that Herman talks about? Where's that coming from? And I think that has a lot to do uh, with uh, integrating concepts like narrative medicine into trauma work. Because I think most people who do my work, and I'm, this is anecdotal, I'm only speaking for myself on this, but I think that most people who do this work would recognize that in the right conditions, with the right audience, with the right level of safety and trust, that there is an organic desire to proclaim the story, that it doesn't have to be pulled out of them. In fact, uh, some of the work that I do really involves helping stem the tide sometimes when it comes flooding out as opposed to coming out in a more coherent narrative form, which can then be used to help integrate the experience into their personality and into the larger fabric of their life. Um, Jonathan Shea, who uh, has been mentioned uh, before, he talked a great deal about uh, in his great book, Achilles in Vietnam. It's actually the title of the, of the paragraph in, in, in the chapter is called uh, How Narrative Heals. And he talks a great deal about the value of being able to put the, put the story into a coherent form, feel uh, trusting enough of those around you to be able to put it into narrative form, and the ways in which that is actually healing. I'm going to talk later about how narrative is actually both cause and effect of healing from trauma. It is not only the vehicle through which someone can heal psychologically, but it is also, and is often in research, actually a dependent variable. That narrative form, being able to put the story into a coherent, uh, clear narrative, is actually the sign that healing has taken place. So normally I spend a, a good deal more time talking about the value of narrative uh, in these uh, lectures. Today I feel like it's a little bit more of preaching to the choir, so I'm gonna go a little less into those details. I think most people in this room uh, or who would be interested in coming, into, uh, coming to a lecture like this would recognize on its face the value of that, of being able to tell your story. Um, now, 
as for background, since I'm going to be talking about exposure therapy and, and the ways in which that helps in the narrative healing process, I want to go a little bit into some of the basics of PTSD and exposure therapy. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly uh, because I want to, I'd, I'd much rather do question and answers. It's much more fun for me. Um, but I'm going to highlight a couple of things that are important as we go through. One, this is I'm going to give the current DSM-IV uh, diagnoses criteria for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder with just a couple of notes along the way. The first one is uh, criteria A2 is new to, or the new, in the newest version of the DSM, which is the DSM-4, which is going to be obsolete in two years, probably. But that was an important shift from when PTSD was first uh, known or elicited as a, as, a, as a diagnosis in the DSM, which was 1981, the DSM-3. Uh, in the DSM-4, they now add subjective experience matters. Uh, we can go into this more in detail later if you had questions. Criteria 1 has shifted over time. It's PTSD started with, with much more vague definitions and experience that someone could go through that anyone would feel is traumatic, for example, was one of the first de definitions of, uh, of, of, the, of the actual traumatic experience. And that's shifted over time, but the real shift is number 2 in that now in the DSM itself, which is problematic in multiple ways, but is, uh, is, is what we use in the field, it now matters not just what happened in the real world, but how that event is experienced, how it is processed, what the emotional reaction to that experience is. And when the DSM-4 does something like that, it matters because it sets up a template through which we can start viewing trauma not just as some external experience that happens out there and in which the individual and the way they perceive the world does not matter. It matters a great deal. Now, I will be critical of the DSM before we go on, so I wanted to throw that out there just as, uh, as a disclaimer. Um, uh, I'm going to go through some of the symptoms. Uh, some of you might be familiar with this. I'm not going to talk about all of them. But one of the things that Herman talked about is that dialectic between wanting to tell the story and being terrified of telling the story. And you see this actually reflected in the symptoms of PTSD, and I, those are the ones I'd want you to take note of here. Why would someone be having recurrent and intrusive distressing recollections of an event? What is that? How do traumatic experiences get in our system in a way that they keep coming back? and they don't stop coming back. And when we do a good job of winning them in the daytime, they come to us at nighttime. Um, this, from Herman's perspective, is that will to express, that will to experience, that will to make sense of. I had one veteran describe his intrusive, distressing recollections of his combat trauma as like when he's, trying to, when he's doing a crossword puzzle and he has a tip of the tongue phenomenon with a word. He says, my mind won't stop. I can't do anything else. I can't focus on where I'm going. I can't focus on who I'm with. My brain does not stop until I figure the damn word out. And when you figure the word out, it's this aha kind of moment. It's this now I can move on. That's the way he experienced his intrusive recollections, both daytime and nighttime. That it was his brain trying to work on something and figure something out that it was having trouble figuring out. Uh, flashbacks, uh, intense psychological distress uh, at exposure is going to be important later because, because that's what we're really working on in exposure therapy, is helping to reduce that emotional distress that's associated with those memories. And from a purely exposure therapy perspective, what you're trying to do basically is lower anxiety and lower the emotional distress associated with the event. But I'm going to make the argument today that exposure therapy does something grander than that. 
which is it serves a larger purpose than just anxiety reduction. And anyone who works with trauma survivors know you don't poo-poo the value of anxiety reduction. We're talking about severe anxiety when we talk about combat trauma, certainly. Um, but I believe, I see exposure therapy as serving a larger master. And that is reducing that anxiety, reducing that distress, so that what I see, and I think a number of people see, is a, a more natural or organic process of healing and processing that we see in most people who undergo trauma. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. Most people who experience uh, even severe trauma do not develop post-traumatic stress. Uh, the numbers vary depending on study to study, but we're talking about basically three to one. And that includes combat veterans. So why, what's happening there? Um, why are most getting through it without PTSD symptoms? By the way, I should say that doesn't mean they're getting through it completely psychologically intact. There are a lot of conditions that can uh, result from trauma other than PTSD, and we know that. But specifically to PTSD, most don't. And we want to understand that. And one of the things I like about exposure therapy is that it's in some ways based philosophically on a very organic healing process which is it's something that we tend to do naturally when the conditions are right and when our coping strategies that we use are adaptive and not maladaptive. The theory that we're going to follow for exposure therapy, which actually lends itself to exposure therapy, is that the coping strategy that's being employed primarily is avoidance. And when you use avoidance as your coping strategy primarily, you're blocking that natural healing or organic healing process. And I see exposure therapy as helping lift that block so that the natural flow of healing can take place. Not everyone agrees with me on this, but that's what I believe. Um, uh, one and two are the important ones here. Um, efforts to avoid, efforts to avoid, efforts to avoid. You, you see in the, uh, in the PTSD literature a lot the phrase, particularly in, uh, with, for combat veterans, uh, avoidance is the enemy that avoidance as the primary coping strategy, and in, in the DSM-4, uh, it's listed as, as, you could see, one and two in the DSM-5, or at least the recommendations for the DSM-5 are to make it a little more uh, broad, and I think a little more right on, which is efforts to avoid internal triggers to trauma, and number two, efforts to avoid external triggers of trauma. But avoidance patterns in PTSD, it's one of the hallmark uh, symptoms. And it is viewed from this perspective as the primary symptom that you, we have to address. And so from these, what are called the avoidance slash numbing symptoms, one and two are something to highlight. And by the way, this speaks to that other side of the Herman dialectic. This is that other side. This is, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna talk about this. I'm not gonna address this. And how that gets, how that dialectic gets navigated is, has a great deal to do with how people uh, move past and survive uh, psychological trauma and has a great influence on uh, the development of exposure-based therapies. Um, the hyperarousal symptoms, uh, I'm going to talk about this uh, uh, more later because one of the things that happens in trauma from this theoretical perspective is that our autonomic nervous system gets fractured in the face of trauma. That uh, our ability to detect real threat versus false threat, our ability to navigate the world in a way that keeps us safe becomes damaged by the traumatic experience itself. And if someone has a hard time detecting what is a real or imagined threat, it seems that there are two ways you can go, really. And one is just let your guard down all the time, and the other is keep your guard, keep your guard up all the time. And you see in the hypervigilance symptoms, uh, these are this, this is what we typically see 
in PTSD. This is being on guard and alert at all times, 24-7. And that has untold, uh, adds untold complications to, to psychological functioning, including physical functioning. Sleep alone. Shay talked a lot about sleep in the workshop, for those of you who are there who can recall that. Just, he wants to know how his combat veterans are sleeping and, and, and are they integrated into their community, basically. Those were the t he narrowed it down to those two things that, for what he looks for. We're going to talk a lot about integrating into the community today. Um, in defense of the DSM, uh, most people who don't or aren't in the field or read it through never see the... Uh, Part F here, and I think it deserves uh, it deserves attention because the DSM takes some hits that um, I don't think are uh, necessarily appropriate. I think it takes a lot of hits that are. Um, but we're talking about severe disturbance. Uh, someone might look at those symptoms and say, "Well, I have that. You know, I have reduced sleep, and my, you know, sometimes I'm looking over my shoulders when I'm walking down the street." PTSD is marked by severe. Uh, severe disturbance in, in, in psychological functioning, occupational functioning, social functioning. We see it in, in such a broad range of things. Um, I was going to make more comments on the DSM, but I'm going to move on. Um, I, just a couple of numbers here that I'm going to go through very quickly. It's, it, by the DSM-4 definition and by the numbers that I'm going to throw out here over the next two slides, we're talking about millions and millions of people in this country who have admitted to, who, who have been, who have been uh, identified as having psychological trauma. A good number of them, multiple traumas. And so we're not talking about uh, an isolated problem uh, of a few people. We're talking about a, a, a whole bunch of people out there with stories to tell that don't feel like they have a place to go to tell them. And the environment in the community oftentimes sends signals back to them that they're right that there really is not a place here for you to tell your story. So for those of us who are clinicians, and this I think was a great theme of the workshop, is we are representatives of the community. And we, we in part, set the tone for whether people feel safe to tell their story or not. Okay, we'll move through that. Um, okay, so this leads, us to, this leads to a question I think everyone who deals with psychological trauma has to deal with on one front or another, whether they realize it or not. It's why these numbers. Why do so many more people not develop a condition like post-traumatic stress than do? Um, there are a number of variables that have been looked at in research. There are the nature and the extent of the trauma itself is still the number one predictor of who will develop PTSD and who will not. Um, there are personality variables associated with this, uh, one of them being what's called on the active-passive dimension, those in a, in a, in a, in a crisis or in a, a trauma situation who are more likely to say things like, okay, I'll go over there, you take care of that, I'll get these people, I'll call them, are less likely to develop PTSD than those that feel like they don't have a place or don't know how to deal with the situation. Uh, many more personality variables than that. Um, this is so interesting because so much of the work uh, that I do uh, is seen by the combat veterans in some ways as, uh, as uh, it's the weapons that did it, it's the IED, it's the mortar, it was the, it was the, you know, the, the daisy chain that was uh, set on the road. But somewhere lurking underneath for every one of them is the idea that there was another human being out there who was trying to kill them. 
that there was another person out there that is trying to kill them. I remember one veteran saying he was scared to death up until he went into the military from a kid in high school who wanted to beat him up. And knowing that there was someone out there who wanted to beat him up kept him up at night. And then he said, now I'm doing three tours in Afghanistan, and I know there are human beings out there who want me dead. And that matters a great deal. People who perceive the trauma as being caused by uh, humans and not natural causes tend to develop PTSD in greater numbers. Um, we're going to talk mostly about coping strategies here because that's what lends itself to this treatment. Um, the top of the pile in traumatic situations refers to this idea that we all come with, with, a, with a bag of tricks. We all come with uh, certain ways of being and styles and coping strategies, strategies that we use every day to survive the non-traumatic world. And then when trauma hits, what we tend to do in those situations is use the coping strategies that are, we are most familiar with. We use the ones that are most trusted. We use the ones that we're most comfortable with. For some people, that's avoidance. For some people, that's psychological avoidance, like denial or repression. Uh, it's environmental avoidance, like never leaving your house again, or never putting the TV on again, or never reading a newspaper again. Um, and we see this uh, in, certainly in combat trauma, and I think we see it in all kinds of uh, psychological trauma. Um, Evidence-based, excuse me, exposure-based therapies for trauma emphasize the role of avoidance and posit that if you can help the trauma survivor break through the avoidance pattern and therefore allow themselves to start making sense of the story for themselves, this starts the healing process. When I show you the video, I hope the video will communicate clearly and viscerally Avoidance, because it's just a word on a page here, but when you see it in front of you, when you see the extent to which a trauma survivor will do anything, anything, this means a, a life of brutal substance use. This means for some who may be the more healthy functioning, I'm going to talk about one later, um, after coming back from combat, worked three jobs for the next 40 years, raised family, uh, just worked themselves to the bone, and then they retire and it's, oh boy, the trauma is still there, sitting there, waiting for them. We're seeing this with the Vietnam generation right now. We're getting an influx of the Iraq and Afghanistan combat veteran coming, veterans coming back. At the same time, we're seeing empty nesting, retiring from uh, career Vietnam veterans coming back. Um, there are lots of ways to avoid. Uh, some healthier than others, but there are lots of ways to do it. So. Um, I talked a little bit about that idea that the, the nervous system itself, the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight system, gets altered during traumatic experience. And that lends itself to not being able to determine later on when in safety, when the trauma has passed, what is a real or uh, imagined threat. The cliche is the Vietnam veteran diving under the car when they hear a helicopter going overhead 40 years later. They will tell you they know it's New York, and they know it's 2012, and they know it's not Da Nang 1967, but that's their cortex telling them that. There's a much more significant, immediate part of their system that doesn't know that yet, and doesn't know that that's a safe helicopter. One recently said, I could see the eyewitness news label on the side of the helicopter. I could see what it was. It didn't matter. It triggered that autonomic nervous reaction of fight or flight. Um, uh, and that's why they're hypervigilant all the time. Um, 
Avoidance is reinforcing, and this is, this is very important, I think, and it actually has a lot to do with what you said before, Chris, for clinicians as well. Avoidance is reinforcing. If you're going someplace uh, emotionally distressing that you don't want to go and you avoid it, you've just been rewarded for it because your anxiety is going to go down, you're going to feel better, and this, just from a purely uh, learning theory perspective, is going to reinforce that avoidance. And so you're working against a great deal of obstacles um, because therapy is great and it works, but it's a small percentage of someone's life. Even when you do exposure-based therapies, and there are some patients I see twice a week for 90-minute sessions, uh, and still, what percentage of their day-to-day -day is that? They're out in the world being reinforced for avoiding their, uh, their traumatic experiences all the time. And so a, a clinician has to be uh, aware of that. It's not just irritating resistance. It is life or death in a lot of ways for uh, people who have survived trauma. Um, can't talk about exposure-based therapies without talking about Edna Foa, who really developed uh, prolonged imaginal exposure, which is now, uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, probably, well, it is the most validated treatment for trauma. It's one of the more validated treatments for anything in my field, um, and uh, Edna Foa is responsible for a great deal of that. Um, her theory is called emotional processing theory. I'm not going to actually go through this because I think I'm already taking more time than I wanted to, but basically her theory is... Uh, and, and it's elicited here, and I'll put the slides up so you could look at it. Um, you develop a maladaptive relationship to fear and threat after you've undergone a traumatic experience. Uh, the guy that I'm going to show you in the video um, had a problem with driving under overpasses, and that's the virtual reality treatment I did with him, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to see that. Uh, when the IED exploded near that bridge in Baghdad, and he had significant autonomic nervous system reaction, that's an adaptive nervous system. That is a life-threatening situation, and that is where you want that nervous system to respond that way. But when you come back home and you generalize that fear, and that comes from right out of the learning theory uh, literature as well, classically conditioned theory. Now it's not IEDs that are the threat, it's bridges that become the threat. And now it's not only bridges in Baghdad that are the threat, it's the 59th Street Bridge that becomes a threat. And then it can generalize if the avoidance pattern dominates, you never really get the opportunity to recalibrate that nervous system. The way you do it is by reintroducing them to their emotional distress and helping them learn to see that their emotional distress does not necessarily reflect the actual threat in the real world. And this is what exposure does, and this is what avoidance works against. Um, so, the treatment philosophy behind exposure therapy is pretty basic. It's not complex. It's one of the things I like about it. You've developed a pathological fear structure whereby now you are getting your nervous system activated in situations in which it is maladaptive to have it activated. And anyone who works with trauma knows this. People who won't go back to the same neighborhood they were in when something bad happened to them. People who still won't go below Canal Street, who happened to be down uh, in lower Manhattan on September 11th, for example. Um, the goal is to help break through the avoidance, to allow that adaptive reaction to threat or false threat to take place. It's, it's very basic in its conception. It's extremely difficult... Uh, to do it, because that avoidance is so intense. 
uh, talk just briefly about uh, uh, the history of exposure. Uh, in vivo exposure is basically the getting back up on the horse treatment. It's been around for longer than there's been psychology or psychiatry, I'm sure. Um, this has also a great deal of face validity to it. The idea that when you're confronted with something that might cause you uh, to, to develop a fear later on, that the adaptive thing to do is to challenge that fear immediately. Get back up on the horse. You will feel anxious when you do. But hopefully what will happen is, with safety, your nervous system will readjust. And it will learn that being on the horse is not just an opportunity to get thrown off and get hurt, but it could be something else. If you avoid the horse altogether, you don't learn that lesson. And then that fear, that avoidance of that horse gets much more deeply entrenched. And then the fear is, is that it starts to generalize. And then you start to see what you see with, with severe PTSD with combat veterans, people who you know, won't even come to treatment because they can't sit in the waiting room with other veterans for more than five minutes. And if I'm five minutes later than I said I would be, they're gone. Because, and that's for a treatment that they want and a treatment that they respect and a treatment that's helping them. Now, let's move away from just anxiety reduction. Uh, to that grander picture that I described before that I think exposure therapy helps with. What does avoidance do beyond just to help keep your anxiety down, to help keep you from having flashbacks or emotional distress? It does something that is of the utmost importance in the treatment of anyone who's suffered a trauma, and that is it reinforces their isolation from the community. It reinforces the idea that they are separate, that they are not part of. It reinforces the idea that no one will want to hear them, that no one will want to hear their story, that even if someone wants to hear their story, they won't understand it anyway, because how could you possibly? I have a private practice. I work with non-trauma patients. When I have patients who have, for example, severe depression, I, I haven't had a severe depression in my life, but I know what it's like to be down. I know what it's like to feel sad. I know what it's like to be somewhat depressed. I don't have their experience, but I do have something to draw upon in my own experience, which can aid in my empathic reactions, which can aid in me trying to understand. When someone tells me they were pinned down in a firefight for 30 minutes and couldn't move, and while stuck with bullets flying overhead, they watched two of their friends being killed, and they couldn't do anything about it, I got nothing. I've got nothing on that. I have no ability to relate to that. That is an experience that is outside my experience almost entirely. And the veterans feel this, and trauma survivors feel this, that there's not an opportunity, even with someone you know, nice and friendly and interested like me, that, would, that are saying, I want to hear the story. It's such a hurdle to overcome. This was really, in some ways, what the entire basis of my doctoral work was, uh, which was Holocaust survivor stories, and the, the inability for Holocaust survivors to believe that anyone could really understand them. In fact, uh, I'm going to put up a quote uh, from Lawrence Langer later, who wrote a great deal on this. You see in Holocaust survivor testimonies the inability for them to even understand it. They don't even believe that it happened to them. They can't conceptualize that something like that could have happened to them. They see it almost as outside themselves. Uh, I couldn't help myself uh, here at the Program for Narrative Medicine. I never get to break out things like this. Um, I thought this was interesting because this is my favorite piece of literature of all time, so I thought I'd share it. Um, Act 1, Scene 1 of Hamlet, everything about that scene speaks of darkness 
and unnatural acts and murder and bad things afoot, rotten things afoot, in fact. Um, Act one, scene two of Hamlet, which is my favorite scene in, in literature, probably pretty much, is what combat veterans talk about it being like when they come home from being at war and seeing a world that looks to be perfectly running, perfectly appropriate. Everyone's going about their business. In Act one, scene two, everyone is there, and it is a scene of a court in perfect order. There's a new king, the old king's gone, the new one's there, everything is going as it's supposed to. People, for the most part, seem happy, the king and queen. Um, it's a smoothly running operation. There's no sign of anything wrong in Act 1, Scene 2 of Hamlet, except for Hamlet, who says at the end of his soliloquy, oh, that this too-too solid flesh would melt, starts that uh, soliloquy. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. I remember I had to do a paper on this in college, and the title was, Why Does Hamlet Have to Hold His Tongue? And this was long before I was interested in psychological trauma or psychology even at all. Why does Hamlet have to hold his tongue? He doesn't. But when you see it, when you see the scene, he has something that it doesn't appear the community around him is going to receive or is going to be even remotely receptive to. He intuitively feels that if he starts up with this now, he's not going to be heard, and it's going to be difficult, and he's going to be isolated. And we see that play out, um, of course, through the piece. Um, later on, he reflects on the more external hurdles uh, to telling the story or uh, how all occasions do inform against me. And veterans will say this too. Veterans will come in when it's exposure therapy day and say, oh, I, I, you know, really, I'm, I, I, you know, I know we were doing the exposure. It's great. It's really working. But can I talk about you know, my brother today? Because my brother really annoyed me this week. And they will come up with reason after reason after reason out in the external world why approaching that story, why going into it in depth would be problematic for them. I'm going to show a very quick video now of uh, an, a virtual reality exposure therapy um, that uh, I think I, I really want to show because it demonstrates how intense the avoidance can be. And okay, um, I, I, it's, I'm not really clear how well you're going to be able to see the actual in the virtual reality shots because it looks pretty dark. But I want you to pay attention to this man's face as I play for him using virtual reality uh, imagery. I'm actually presenting him with digitally recreated sounds of combat. I'm presenting him with, you'll see the computer generated imagery. And also, it's not in the video, but later on in the session, I presented him with smells associated with combat as well that come with the virtual reality. But the real purpose of this is to get a visceral experience of what we mean, those of us who work with trauma, when we talk about wanting to avoid and the emotional distress associated with having these memories recalled. I want to know what the time of day was, who they were with, what environment they were in. So I can accordingly set up the variables on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being the highest level of anxiety or distress. Tell me how that distress level is right now. I'd say one or two, one or two. My goal is to keep them at a consistent level of anxiety and distress so that they can then adapt to it. When you start entering some of these highly populated towns like this here, um, 
sensors kind of get heightened. You know, anything that looks like a wire, a hole, but that right there, you know, mm -hmm. that, that street light with that rock, you know, that's it. Because it's a sensory experience, you have all these doors which you might be able to open, which might help trigger that reaction. The visual might not, but the sound might. The sound might not, but the scent might. All of them together. When I look at those visuals, my first thought is, that's pretty good, but I'm certainly not buying that that's a rack or that's a real Humvee. And so it really surprised me when a number of the veterans were, you know, looked at those visuals and you could see, like, you know, gulp. Um, and it's not, and none of them are saying, this is exactly what my Humvee looked like, or this is exactly what that road looked like. None of them would say that. But what's happening is that it's triggering a memory. It's triggering a visceral experience. Basically, you know, the thing that you understood enough after being there for a while was you didn't ever own a convoy. You didn't ever want to stop. You know, if you were stopped for some reason, that was not a good sign. And we were stopped for like 10 minutes. Sitting there? Sitting there. Nothing happened. I don't know anything more frightful. Because um, it's that anticipation, you know. At least if you had something, you know, showing itself, then you had a target, you know. It was that anticipation for those 10 minutes was lasted. They lasted like, you know, a year. These are their worst fears. They're in some ways the worst experiences humans can go through. And it wasn't until we cleared that road started to actually move, that we started to hear that ambush uh, fire coming from both sides, actually. When you see them face up to it, 
challenge themselves, work their way through it. It's a thrilling experience. What you described for me now, what your fear was sitting in that convoy not moving. It's just been a tremendously rewarding experience for me to see not only the ways in which I can check off that their symptoms have been reduced, but that it generalizes into other areas of their life and they feel much more capable, uh, much stronger, uh, and that they can face whatever it is the, the world will throw at them. Uh, right now, anxiety right. rating. That's good. I'm going to stop it there. Um, <clears throat> I didn't talk much about the nuts and bolts of exposure. So this is what we're hoping for when he reports he's now at a one. What we're hoping to see, I'm doing something called uh, uh, measuring subjective units of distress. I'm interested in what his experience of his anxiety is. We do have psychophysiological measures, galvanic skin response, uh, heart rate, those kinds of things to measure nervous system activation. But what I'm interested in primarily is what's his experience of his emotional distress? And that's what you would hope for at the end of an exposure therapy session, that he was up to a five or six out of 10 at a certain point. But through the, the help of the technology and, and myself, uh, that he can face the anxiety and then the process of habituation takes place. And this is the, actually the agent of change in exposure-based therapies, is habituation, uh, which is defined as in the face of uh, consistent sorry, uh, and chronic stimulus, uh, the nervous system will uh, reduce its attention to that stimulus if it deems it non-threatening. If it deems it non-threatening. And so... I haven't talked about this too much up to this point, but this, the uh, setting up of safety, of a safe environment. What makes exposure therapy exposure therapy and not a video game, which is what all the combat vets want to know, is that in exposure-based therapies, we want them to experience distress. We want them to experience anxiety. We don't want them to have the control that they would have in a video game. A lot of these guys come back and play Call to Duty and those kinds of uh, video games, and they love it, but they're not doing exposure therapy. Uh, because the control that they exert in a video game is allowing them to act out on their anger, act out on their frustrations to be sure, but it's not helping them really to learn how to tolerate emotional distress. Um, by being in an emotionally distressed state, and we do those sessions for about 40 minutes, um, what you hope have happen is the nervous system, now that it's not avoiding that anxiety, now that it's not avoiding that distress, learns that this anxiety that they are feeling is not necessarily an accurate representation of the threat in the real world because they just felt that way for 45 minutes and nothing bad happened to them. And that's why in exposure-based therapies, nothing bad happens. In virtual reality, we have very few uh, negative uh, consequences in the video. It's getting a little more intense as they, uh, as they make new versions of it, but at first there was no blood, there was no death, that nothing actually bad happens in the, in the video itself. Um, what time do we have? Um, I'm wondering if it's worth doing this little case study or just opening it up. I, what? Do it. Do it. Okay. Um, so I've talked about how I like to see exposure therapy not just as anxiety reduction and habituation and helping them uh, to learn how to challenge their anxiety, but to use that then to now start talking about their experience, to now start integrating their experience into the larger community, and that could mean family, that could mean fellow veterans, that could mean city, that could mean country. 
Uh, it's why the Vietnam veterans have such unique issues because of the ways they felt they were separated from their community when they came back. So um, the way I look to see this and what I'm looking for in my work is actual shift and changes in the narrative itself. What do we know about trauma narrative? We know it tends to be impressionistic. It tends to be nonspecific. It tends to be achronological. It tends to not have beginnings, middle, middles, and ends the way uh, a normal non-traumatic story would. It makes it that much more difficult to integrate. It makes it that much more difficult to communicate. So I'm just going to give a, a, a very brief example and then take questions. Um, uh, this is um, going to present a 61-year-old married domiciled Hispanic male. He was a Vietnam combat veteran, uh, reports no pre-morbid psychological problems. Uh, currently married with a woman he was in love with and loved him, felt it was a great relationship, not common uh, amongst that amongst that crowd, but in this case it was. Uh, very productive, high-functioning man for a long period of time, was one of those whose avoidance was in industry. Uh, he went to work, and he worked for NYPD, and by the way, did something else that we're not really talking about much today that trauma survivors often do, which is go out seeking sensation, which is to go out looking for that adrenaline rush. Uh, that being through uh, combat can provide. A lot of those guys miss that for the rest of their lives and find day-to-day -day life rather dull. So sometimes people, in a way of helping them reintegrate and work back into society, actually approach difficult situations, but not his particular trauma he did. Um, he reported pretty much a full range of PTSD symptoms over 40 years when I met him. Like so many, you know, came to the VA maybe once to get a crown filled or something. Never thought to come for any kind of psychological problem. Um, but it's one of the great things about being at the VA is they're patients for life. You see them, they come, they go, you, they knock on your door when they're coming for their dental visit and say hello. If you're there long enough, you know their wives, you know their kids, uh, you know, the, the, really you get a full range of their whole story. Uh, this guy uh, had not been at the VA getting treatment for a very long time. Um, I want to just highlight because of this, the way this particular uh, treatment evolved, uh, the severe guilt and the survivor guilt. Um, right now, that's not a symptom, according to the DSM-IV, by the way, of trauma, and those who work in the field have long been frustrated by that. Um, but that looks like that's going to change for the DSM-V, uh, um, and that's particularly um, prevalent in combat veterans, as you might imagine. Um, Okay. First comes in, I, I, my, my first role with him was to just to do a basic post-traumatic stress disorder evaluation to see if he had the condition, to see if he was eligible for services within the PTSD clinic. Uh, and so I met him in October of 2008. I asked for the story. This is what I do. Uh, this gets me in trouble because stories take longer than just checking boxes on what symptoms are there. But it is what it is. Uh, this is how he described this particular trauma that um, I did in exposure therapy with. By the way, I, I didn't do a virtual reality exposure therapy with him. I did what's called a prolonged exposure therapy, which I didn't get into in much detail, but it's really using memory and a narrative to revisit the uh, psychological trauma, and it's very intense, and it's uh, very specific, and it's very, very, very challenging for uh, both clinician and survivor. Um, I was in an ambush all day. Half my guys were killed or wounded. There was an explosion. A guy right next to me was killed. I got hit with the shrapnel all day. It was in December. That's the first way when I first met him. When he, he was convinced that exposure therapy might be useful for him, which was no easy task, 
and I did a full trauma history uh, specific to the exposure, this is what he said. Not that long later. It was December 6, 1967. An all-day close fighting fight. I was injured. A lot of people died, killed, injured. I was injured. Now, this is a couple of months in between, and we hadn't done any sort of trauma-focused or exposure-based work. But this put those two together, and these are the stories you get from trauma survivors. It jumps back and forth. In the first one, he says the date at the end. He brought up the getting hit by the shrapnel incident uh, at, uh, out of chronological time with other incidents that he brought up. Um, this is the impressionistic traumatic narrative that you see early on in PTSD. And so when we talk about narrative repair, you can see what we're talking about. This is a very, this is a challenging narrative to follow. Um, this, he lent himself to this lecture because it was so short and I could put it on a slide. But when you see it with other uh, trauma survivors, it's, it's, it's hard to follow. And it's hard to follow because they have a hard time following it. It's hard for them to make sense of it. Um, so, I want to report to you, oh, by the way, he also reported other traumas in that initial meeting, and I, I don't know if you can see this, I'm not going to read it, but they were lengthy, and they were detailed, and they were chronological, and they weren't impressionistic, and these were significant traumas. This was not anything light. He had other things happen to him, but I could tell from just the way he described the stories where we were going. If we were going to do an exposure-based therapy, what, what, what narrative are we going for here? Um, so I'm not going to read them to you, but you'd be surprised. This is an intelligent person. This is a, you know, an, an, a homicide detective, climbed the ranks of the NYPD, and was working for the district attorney's office, actually, when I started uh, working with him. And that particular one, he just, that, that was the best he could muster for his story. I want to share with you briefly, um, and I'm just, this is just the highlights of my notes from uh, as, the, uh, as the exposure progressed. Uh, I always, when doing an exposure therapy, remind the veteran at the end of the exposure, and this is 40 to 45 minutes of me basically getting them to tell me in excruciating detail the best that they can recall what happened to them. I will always go over with them afterwards, what did I hear today that I didn't hear the last time? What language am I hearing? What sensory experiences am I hearing? Um, so that they can start integrating that into the larger story. By the way, I have them listen to tapes of their exposures for homework in between sessions so they can do the same. Um, so basically I'm just um, I'm mentioning here what, uh, what some of the things that came up anew in different exposure sessions. On February 17th, uh, which was probably exposure number four. Um, I did probably about 10 or 11 of these sessions with this, with this veteran. He was able to name some of the fellow soldiers. They stopped becoming just objects and started becoming people. He remembered their names. Um, he remembered the name of the particular combat operation that he was on, which is a very big deal to combat veterans. Um, hadn't recalled that before, or I shouldn't say that, hadn't mentioned it before. Um, he remembered that in the middle of the firefight that he had the taste of an old World War II sea ration in his mouth. That some of the Vietnam guys when they were out in the field for days didn't eat anything for days. And they would have sometimes, you know, literally World War II era uh, supplies. Not only weaponry, but food. He remembered that in the middle of this firefight. Actually, he remembered when he was hit by the shrapnel and that experience that he had that taste in his mouth that he hadn't recalled before. 
Um, he also described in much greater detail the environmental conditions. He remembered in that particular day talking about the heat and the rain, and it was an all-day event, and the altering back and forth between the brutal heat and the cool rain. A couple of weeks later, so I'm assuming this is a couple of exposure sessions later, um, he remembered the name and details of the veteran that was standing next to him, um, when the, the veteran that was killed. This was accompanied by significant emotion. Uh, this particular moment. And that's, those are those amazing moments when you do this work, when something like that happens. It's, it's not, they're not great moments, they're not fun moments, but they're amazing moments to be with other human beings when, they, when, when something like that hits and they're beginning to be able to tolerate and deal with these kinds of details, which, by the way, flesh out a narrative. And this is what narrative repair means in this context that now these are human beings out there, and I remember the experiences that I had, and I can now tell this story, and I can tell it accurately, or as accurately as I can recall, and I can tell it in a way that might be able to make sense to other people now. Um, uh, he talked a great deal in that session about the feeling of the sweat, not just that it was hot, but the actual feeling of the sweat dripping down his back. Um, I got freaked out when he described that. It was so detailed. It was so visceral. He was so right there in the moment. Um, he spoke, I noted that he spoke more today of feeling guilty currently. Now, one of the things you don't want people to do during exposure exercise is to editorialize, to start making comments on the scene, to start describing how they're feeling now. It's not that that's not valuable information, but it does pull them out of the traumatic moment. Um, this was one of those editorializings that I noted because he talked about the guilt being uh, an, a, a, an important symptom for him and you'll see uh, when I talk about the next exposure why that's valuable in this context. Uh, I also noted that on that day, March 3rd, so I first saw him on October 8th, he hadn't uh, talked to any other combat soldiers in 40 years, he hadn't gone to reunions, he hadn't gone to Veterans Day parades, he completely dissociated himself from his military experience. On that day, he wore the hat of his unit, which is a very big deal at a VA. Uh, guys walk around with their medals, and they walk around with their associations. And he came in. He was actually part of a, quite a famous uh, infantry division. It was Custer's division, actually. Uh, in Vietnam, they saw a great deal of combat. It's called the First of the Seventh, and they have a, a very unique patch. And there's a great pride associated with being uh, one of the First of the Seventh. Uh, he walked in with that hat. Uh, on March 17th, we went through a number of different exposures during the day, and this will be the last I talk about it. The first time around, he recalled that he heard of the death of a fellow soldier on that day, but he recalled not being there to see it, and he wondered why he wasn't there to see it. He was the NCO. He was, it was, they were his guys. He referred to them as his guys. And the idea of a memory coming up that someone in his unit was killed and that he wouldn't have been there but he actually heard about it, and he couldn't make sense. He, he just couldn't piece it together. He couldn't figure out why he wouldn't have been there, why it would be something he would hear about. And he experienced great anger, great shame, and great guilt in that moment that this was what he recalled. By the third time we did the exposure on that day, he recalled that when he was hit by shrapnel, he was taken from the field by people who made him leave the field. He didn't recall that for 40 years. He could not remember that he was not there. 
Now, this is narrative repair. This is, and now this man felt guilty with survivor guilt for 40 years. Now, I'm not saying, you know, this is not a movie. He doesn't magically become healed uh, after something like this. But this is what we refer to when we say, now it's not just about anxiety reduction. Now it's not just about that he's having fewer nightmares. Now he's filling in gaps to his story that are helping him make sense of the story. And when he remembered that, it was really, it was like one of those aha moments. If I'm not mistaken, his hand actually went up over his mouth. Oh my God, I was hit by shrapnel. Of course they took me off the field. He was actually, he was hit in the eye. Um, so he was bleeding a lot. He felt he was fine, but others didn't. So over time, through a safe environment, through helping him break through the pattern of avoiding these things that he'd done for 40 years, we now helped him to make sense of the story, to start filling in the gaps, to start making it something that he can contribute to others. I'm going to, the last thing I'm going to uh, note is a note that I wrote, and this is March uh, 13th. So that was just a couple of days before that. This is from my note. Uh, which I almost always make exceptionally vague and trying to communicate nothing in for the most part. Um, that has continued ex his examination of his military life more fully. He looked up some old military records on the internet today, finding pictures of himself as a soldier, which he brought in and hadn't seen in 40 years. He found some paperwork online with the names of all the men in his unit that were killed on the day in question. Uh, he discussed how he was growing more comfortable integrating these memories and the memories of the war into his experiences. in a primary care appointment with what you hope for, a clinician uh, out there who's sensitive to um, psychiatric symptoms and noted that he looked extremely uh, agitated, uh, that some of the symptoms that he was reporting might be symptoms of post-traumatic stress and referred him to see one of our mental health people in primary care, which is one of the nice things that the VA has done a great deal of recently. They've, they've recognized the hurdles towards psychiatric care and, and the stigma attached. And so they've had a good number of uh, clinicians down in primary care that they can refer to immediately, walk him over, see a psychologist. They've referred him to me. Yes? Both. Uh, I have a very healthy respect for psychiatric medications working in a PTSD clinic. Uh, I became a psychologist for a reason. I didn't want to prescribe medications, and I believe that there are, you know, they are, you know, all the things that we read about and hear about. I do believe psychiatric meds are all prescribed and all of that. But uh, we're talking about severe, severe psychiatric symptoms, and medications play a role. What we don't want to have happen is, particularly in this kind of work, is having the medications be an, an avoidance aider. That's, that's what we don't want. 
But that said, that's, there's, a, there's an art to that, and it's not so straightforward. I would say the majority of people that I do exposure-based work with are on some kind of psychiatric med. I think that has something to do with the nature of combat trauma, for one. I think it might, I might be biased in this, but my view is that it, it, it is different than other kinds uh, of trauma. I'm generalizing here. And I think the severity of it is such that sometimes it's appropriate. But also, you know, it's a large institution, and, you know, there are probably 500 times more veterans than there are clinicians who could see them. So um, we do things at the VA like, you know, give people meds and see the symptoms go down. So it, it, can, it can be both. But I have, I have a healthy respect for, for the meds, particularly the anti-anxiety medications. Okay, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not an automatic course of treatment. Um, my view is, uh, I, I sort of think hierarchically about this. I think when an in vivo exposure is available and appropriate, that you do an in vivo exposure. I think getting someone to actually go back to the environment and the situation that they were in, uh, it, just, it just comes with, with, with so much more stuff. I, more exposure stuff. But uh, in vivo exposure is not really logistically reasonable with combat veterans. Uh, the, the, the military actually did experiment with bringing some uh, wounded, sold, with, wounded soldiers with PTSD back to Iraq if their units were still there so they could reintegrate with the community of their unit and revisit the scenes of some of their traumatic experiences. But uh, I haven't heard much follow-up from that. Um, I tend to think prolonged imaginal exposure where you talk it through is something I would prefer to do generally, although that's way more difficult for me personally. It's very difficult. It's just you and a person, and that, 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 that avoidance of the clinician that Chris talked about before is real. Uh, there are times I can't do more than you know, one a day or something like that, and even that can be a lot. Um, but not everyone can do prolonged exposure. It's a very challenging uh, treatment, not just because you're approaching difficult emotional experiences, but it requires cognitive capacity that not everyone has. You know, one of the, uh, the big issues of these wars is traumatic brain injury and people coming back now alive that wouldn't have been if they had they been in Vietnam, and they're coming back with severe head trauma. So if you don't have even the basics of the, the foundation of the story, you know you're not going to expect a full fully coherent narrative when someone survives a trauma, but you need some nuggets in which to build on. A lot don't have that. And so for me, virtual reality, the value of it is really in the ways that it helps people who really can't do prolonged exposure, because um, we, uh, we can present the traumatic material. Um, most, the reaction of most veterans is some version of, what, why, why, you're gonna make me do what? You know, mo the reaction of most. Not all, but most. Uh, in exposure-based treatments, uh, there's a great deal of psychoeducation that goes on. Uh, I will sit with a, for someone who's going to do virtual reality, I will probably meet individually for 90-minute sessions five to seven times before I even bring them into that room. I'm getting full trauma histories. I'm getting f full narratives as, or as, 
as full as I can get. And I'm doing a lot of explaining the process. A lot of days worth, discussions worth. Because you are asking them to do what they are deathly afraid of. You are asking them to do the very thing that their common sense tells them not to do. And that they haven't been doing for years. And that they've been reinforced for not doing for years. So the, rea the, the immediate reaction for most is no. Um, and sometimes it takes a good amount of time of meeting with them and maybe doing some more supportive work or uh, get them in the anger management class and see if you can you know, get them to recognize the value of it some other way. But uh, yeah, this is, most patients do not want to do this. Most patients don't do this. A good number of patients who start it don't finish it um, because it's so challenging. But yes, you get very, very strong reactions in that way. Um, I like the psychoeducation piece. I like the teaching part. I think it comes more naturally to me. So these kinds of therapies are like it's a it's a bit, it's a good fit for me because I like explaining it and I like describing it and I think I do a reasonably good job of that. But even so, the uh, I was going to say overwhelming majority, but maybe that's too too much. A majority of them, even after hearing that, would be like, no thanks. Maybe they'll join my group, though, and then I got them in my group, and then I, you know, start helping them to, you know, encourage them to start telling their story. Given the amount of time it takes to roll through this process, an administrator would have to decide how to allow the amount of time given to the in order to be able right. to see, we haven't talked about any quantifiable differences using this therapy, say, First, the word administrator gets my PTSD activated. So, um, this is a big challenge in many ways. And I'll give you just a brief example of this. If you meet with a veteran for 15 minutes and talk with them about, you know, what, you know, what's happening to them during their day, um, you get what's called in the VA an encounter which matters at the VA. I'm sure it matters here too. People have to you know, document what they're doing. And funding is based on these kinds of things. So I'm seeing one person for 90 minutes and I get administrators. You saw one person today? It's like, yeah. And that was quite enough, thank you. Um, yes, it's a problem. However, the VA is, to their credit, paying very close attention to what are seen as the evidence-based treatments. Now listen, I have, there are problems with the evidence-based treatments too uh, that have to be discussed. And I think they have a lot to do with what Chris was talking about before with who's trained to do it. You can't just train anyone to do this. It, this, is not, this, is, you know, this is not just by the numbers work. If, you're, if you don't have an intrinsic interest in asking them what was the sweat like dripping down from your back, it doesn't matter how much training you get in this, you're not going to be an effective clinician. But they are putting a lot of money and a lot of attention into these evidence-based treatments. So I do get, a little, get cut a little slack on this from the administration because now I look good on some other spreadsheet which says our, our you know, facility is doing the evidence-based treatments. Um, there are many avenues to healing from psychological trauma. And there's, there's significant research to back up that mindfulness techniques, meditation techniques, relaxation training. I'm referring to my, pa my patients to these things all the time. Uh, this is not, you know, just because it's a, either a primary treatment or the number one validated treatment does not mean it's the only treatment. Um, 
There, there is some evidence that exposure-based therapies, particularly prolonged exposure, has a larger effect size across all the subclusters of PTSD. That, that research is out there. But the idea that it's the only treatment is, 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 you know, we provide a full range of services at the VA, including that. And it's very well respected within the VA as well. my dissertation was about, so I'm just going to hold it up because I like, I like bragging on my heroes. This is called Holocaust Testimonies, The Ruins of Memory by Lawrence Langer. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's in many ways what my dissertation was based on. Lawrence Langer was a Holocaust historian for many years, spent 15 to 20 years of his life reading Holocaust, uh, reading the writings, Holocaust narrative, the Charlotte Delbos, the, the, the ones who wrote biographies, the ones who wrote histories. And when the Yale Fortunoff archive of oral testimony started taking the oral testimonies of Holocaust survivors, Langer went to check it out. And he was absolutely blown away by the difference between what it's like to sit with someone when they are in the act of authorship of their narrative, as opposed to what it's like when that's been completed and now they are sitting and writing about the experience. And it's, it's very much at the heart of your question, that writing for those who have done that kind of work beforehand comes just by the conventions of writing, narrative forms, beginnings, middles, ends, even sentences. They, these were sentence fragments this guy is throwing out here uh, on the screen. Um, there are significant differences. However, it doesn't make the writing out of traumatic narrative any less effective than it does sitting with them while they're struggling to tell their own story. Personally, for me, I find being with them while they're authoring this story to be the thrilling part of this work. And I think uh, Langer talks about it in such beautiful terms that when, when, you, when you're with someone who's struggling to make sense of the story with you in real time, the, it's a, just a rocky ride. They are going all over the place and you're following them and you're trying to help them reintegrate it back into some coherent form. Uh, cognitive processing therapy is one of the new evidence-based treatments for PTSD and cognitive processing therapy uses the written form as the, the way of, of, of exposure. So it is used, um, it's, just, it's just different. Um, one of the reasons uh, I'm partial to doing this kind of work is because I think this is what their day-to-day -day is more like. These are people that are you're not going to you know walk into a room at Thanksgiving and say hi everyone I wrote this story and can you read it but they they but someone might ask them what was it like in Vietnam and that it's more of their day to day experience learning how to address that issue in real time um, so I find it valuable in that way but yeah the, the written form is, is is used a great deal and by the way more and more and more so in, in trauma work. Skip Rizzo. Uh, yes, there's a psychologist out in, uh, at the University of San Francisco, excuse me, Southern California, who was uh, contracted by the Navy to develop training virtual reality. 
So uh, soldiers could train in weaponry, they can train in tactics without actually having to go out in the field, without actually having to face live rounds, all those kinds of things. And to the best I can tell, and I had this conversation with him once, he had literally a eureka moment um, where he said, we could use this for exposure. So now he's got the military backing him and funding him. So every three or four months or so, we get an updated version of the program. I have five different programs for Iraq and Afghanistan. The one that you saw was the, we call it the Humvee environment. Anyone who fought in Iraq was on one of those rows. That's just the way you enter into the country. Everyone's uh, sent to Kuwait, and you enter up through Kuwait. So it's very generalizable to Iraq veterans. But there's a, a Afghanistan Humvee environment. There's a city environment uh, for virtual Iraq, which involves you could walk in and out of buildings. You can kick doors down. You can go into mosques. You can. It's like a whole little city that you can move around. And it's it's with feedback from combat veterans. Basically, they keep you know, making it more and more and more sophisticated. But it's a good question because you are limited by the technology. And sometimes things happen in combat that's you, you know, someone might say, oh, 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 can I do the virtual reality? Can I, I want to put the goggles on. But their experience is not something that I can recreate. Uh, the visuals are particularly limiting. Um, but as I mentioned in the video, sometimes, I mean, I, I had one veteran where all we do is sit in the room and I just play the sounds of mortars landing. That's it. And we do it over and over and over and over again um, because that's what is activating his emotional reaction. That's what I'm looking for. What's the door in which I don't see that what I call newscaster syndrome where they tell you the story but they're flat? That's what we don't want to see. I want to see them struggle with something. And then we, you know, we do our best to recreate it as best we can. But you are, you are limited by the technology. It's true. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.